Hello and welcome to Word for the Day. This is Father Pete Matthews from St. Patrick's Anglican Church, and I'm here for another installment of our series through Philippians. And as I did last week, I'm going to do a longer podcast that um, kind of adds some stuff to my sermon or homily from Sunday. And, you know, preparing a talk, whether it's a sermon or I'm sure a you know, a TED Talk or anytime someone speaks in public, you always prepare more than you need to use. So in the same way that like, you know, oftentimes when a movie's made, more is on the cutting room floor than what's put in the movie. Um, if a talk's well prepared, that should be the case as well. Um, so I always have other stuff I think about and it's like, oh, I'd love to talk about that, but it doesn't really fit with maybe the heart of the text. It might be in a, a tangential implication or it doesn't fit in with the time, and I have to sort of pick and choose the direction we're going to go. So um, today I want to talk about three different things that pop up from our text we uh, preached through on Sunday. So let me read the text again. It's Philippians 1, 12 through 26. It says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, excuse me, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, take a breath there. Um, and um, um, let's talk about three things today. So the first thing that I want to kind of spend a little time on is the question of life after death. It pops up in this text where St. Paul has this, this, this reflection, this sort of um, meditation where he's saying, well, you know, I might be put to death and, um, you know, it means I won't be with you or I might not be put to death and I'll eventually be to you, be with you. And he says in verse 21, in the midst of all that, but, you know, no matter what, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that phrase to die is gain. That's kind of a portal or, or yeah, kind of a portal into a larger question about what is the Christian understanding of life after death? If I'm a Christian believer I have faith in Jesus Christ, have assurance of my salvation because I've put my faith in Jesus and I follow him as my Lord. So I'm in that place where I have a living relationship with Jesus. Um, what should I expect when I die? And so um, I often say this, which I've um, 
uh, totally taken from the biblical theologian N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, as he likes to be called. Um, I don't know that because he told me that personally. I just have seen him talk a lot. And he says that. Um, he says this interesting kind of provocative statement. He'll say, Christians don't believe in life after death. They believe in life after life after death. So what is he talking about? Well, in the classical Christian view, there's two stages to life after death. Stage one is what we typically talk about when we say someone goes to heaven when they die. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, look, if, if I die, if I'm put to death, you know, I'm found guilty and put to death as a result of this imprisonment, then um, I'm going to leave here and go be with Jesus. And we know that his body wasn't going to leave here. We know that when people die, their bodies don't go away. Um, he's talking about the the, the non-material part of himself, his spirit, his soul, whatever. That that part of us that isn't material, that is in, inextricably linked to our body, somehow God takes that into his presence and we go to be in heaven with him. We don't know a lot of what heaven looks like. There's, there's this vision that St. John has in the book of Revelation, but it's full of a lot of symbolism. So it's hard to know how much of that is meant to be taken as a literal vision or not. We, we can talk about that later. But what I can say, according to this text, it's better than being here. So I'm not sure what it is. I don't think it's just riding on a cloud playing a harp. Second, you may have heard this, you know, people don't become angels when they die. Angels are separate created beings. You stay human. But somehow we're in the presence of God. It's it's kind of a, often the church talks about it's, it's a resting. I don't think I mean you're asleep, but it's like the labor and the tension and the anxiety is so gone. We're in this restful place of joy and presence in God. Um, oftentimes it's called the intermediate state because it's not the end of the process. It's not the end of the journey. There's a stage two to life after death. And that's when Jesus returns and the resurrection of the dead happens. So if you go to St. Patrick's Church, we say the Nicene Creed every Sunday and the apostles once in a while when there's a baptism. And we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead. What are we talking about? Well, at the end of the age, what happened to Jesus will happen to all humanity. Um, except for those who are alive, they'll just be taken up into God's presence, but they'll be transformed as well. They just won't have to go through death first. And there'll be a, a resurrection to life for those who are in Jesus Christ. They'll be resurrected like Jesus and be in glory. And there'll be a kind of bodily resurrection for those who are separate from God, who've rejected God, um, and, and God allow them to go on with that. But I'm not going to talk about that side of the story because I'm talking to those of us who are believers, what we have to expect. We can talk about that in another podcast. Be glad to delve into the issue of hell and judgment, how that all works out. Um, but not today. But for us who are believers, the minute we die, that immaterial part of us goes to be with God. And then we wait in the intermediate state until the day of resurrection. And then somehow, God knows, you know, he created everything so he can deal with this. This is just not an issue. He'll bring our bodies back. And of course, you know, someone who died 2,000 years ago, he's going to have to pull together a bunch of molecules and just sort of do a new thing because your bodies don't last that long um, in the ground, except may maybe your bones. But um, God can work at the biology. But the point is, we'll rise from the dead in our 
non-material self will be reunited with our bodily self. It will be fully human again, but we will be glorified. Now, glorified, I don't know fully what that means. We're not told. It's just that somehow we're still going to be physically and bodily beings in eternity, in a new heaven, in a new earth. And it'll be a lot like the way Jesus was after he rose from the dead. So Jesus ate. So maybe we'll get to eat. Maybe we won't put on weight. That might be awesome. Um, you know, Jesus at the same time can sort of just appear in a room. Maybe we'll just be able to like zip around the universe and not even worry about it. It'll be, I mean, wouldn't that be cool? I don't know. But, but I will say this, that's our ultimate goal for our salvation. And what it tells us is, Eternal life isn't something less than human. It's something that makes us more fully human. And your body isn't a problem. Your bodily existence isn't bad. God made that. He made that for us. And he plans on that being our eternal state with him. So that we'll be like Jesus in heaven forever with a glorified resurrected body. But if we have to end this life before that day comes, know this based on this text. Whatever that intermediate state is like, whatever is heaven and heaven is like, um, to live is Christ, but to die is actually a gain. It's better. And so something to look forward to. Okay, that's life after death. If you have questions about that, reach out to me. We can talk about more, more about that. Okay, so the second thing I want to talk about is being a witness. I want to talk about evangelism or evangelization. And in this text, though it doesn't say it in black and white, there's a great lesson about how, how witness works for a Christian. So I've noticed kind of two, two problems people exhibit when they relate to evangelization or evangelism. One is they're all in and they go out and try to become salesmen and they get a script of sort of a sales process. And you're going out and you're finding people, people you don't know, and you're cornering everyone and telling them about Jesus. And two things, people have that script and then some people try to live by it. And it's just not a pleasant experience, at least for the people who are getting witness to. They don't like it for the most part. And it doesn't usually work. Someone will always, usually a preacher, will tell them some story about one time when it works. And of course, God is big. Of course, God is good. And sometimes that is the case. And sometimes maybe there's a, there's a supernatural thing that happens. But that's really, really, really rare. The opposite problem is people go, I don't like that script, so I don't like evangelism, and I ain't going to do it because it's kind of yucky. And, you know, should we just let everyone just believe what they want to believe? Well, no, actually, the, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's what Jesus said. I'm not making that up. And he calls us to be witnesses. Well, then what does it actually look like? Well, what I imagine is in this text, Paul writes about being in prison, and he talks about how these guards um, have come to faith and heard the gospel. Well, how did it happen? Well, now I'm extrapolating, but I don't think this is an uneducated guess. I think Paul was rejoicing. He talks about how he's rejoicing about the gospel going forth and rejoicing with them. We have a, a story of Paul in jail in Philippi, actually, not in Rome, in the book of Acts in chapter 16. And he and Silas are in jail, and they're worshiping God and singing hymns. And the rest of the people in jail are like, what is it with you guys? So I have this, this, this kind of, in my imagination, I think, there are these guards, you know, and they're probably like, they have shifts, and they're taking turns, and they all have to be with Paul. And Paul's just hanging out with them, probably getting to know him. He's probably asking about their families, you know. 
maybe they have a wife, kids. You know, he's probably saying, hey, I'm going to pray for you guys. He's like, yeah, I'm in here in this prison. I'm stuck. I pray all the time. You guys let me know if you, need, you have any needs. I'll be praying for you. And, you know, and Tertius comes in for the noon shift. He's like, Tertius, you're telling me your kid is having struggle at school. How's that going, man? Yeah, well, I'm really worried about that, and I'm concerned about that. And so they see this guy who's in prison and in chains under the foot of Rome, and most people are probably just hating it, depressed, complaining. And here's this guy choosing to rejoice in Christ and then choosing to love these guards who should be his enemies. And probably at some point they're like, Paul, what is it with you, man? Why are you like this? This is not the way people normally are. People don't usually treat us well and respect us. People don't ask us about our life and our family. And then I know, you know, you're sort of this Jewish Christian guy and you pray to your one God and you pray. And maybe they came back and said, you know, you prayed for me and like it happened. And so what gives? And I can imagine Paul going, well, I'm like this because of my faith, you know, and I mean, I'd be glad to talk to you about it, but if you don't want to, it's okay. And Maybe they say no. Maybe they go, you know, I actually really am curious. Let me ask you some questions. And just natural conversation flows out of who he is in their presence. Maybe it took a year to get to that place. And then maybe one or two or all of them decide, you don't think I want to become a Christian. Tell me more. And they're just in this process of being in relationship and this this kind of this kind of life of Paul lives of it's clearly he's really into this God thing, but also is really caring and loving towards them, and and it raises their curiosity, and so they begin to talk to him about it. Great picture of how witness works. In all kinds of different ways, we're all in the world, right? Jesus said, um, "Be in the world, but not of it." Didn't want us to be out of it; wanted us to be in it. And then we're just living as Christians. That's really our call, um, faithfully living as Christians as best we can, um, walking with Christ, walking in love, maybe praying for people. Paul's probably praying for those guards. And then out of that, you know, conversations happen and God does his work. And God's in charge of all that. You know, it's kind of his process. It's his thing. We just kind of join him with it. And you get this sense that Paul's in prison. I don't feel like he's anxious. I don't feel like he's probably, you know, kind of in a, in a Machiavellian way setting out to convert these guys. He probably wants them to come to Christ. I mean, why wouldn't he? He loves them, right? And he loves Jesus. So he loves the gospel and he wants the gospel advance. But he's trusting God and just cooperating with what God's doing in that situation and letting it naturally unfold. Okay, I could say more to that. But I think that's such an encouraging picture there of that part of our life as disciples to help make other disciples. Then lastly, I want to talk about rejoicing. Um, I, I mentioned this in my homily, but I want to develop it a little bit more. So there, you know, joy is an emotion, right? It's something we feel. And um, we tend, we tend to think of it as something that is sort of automatic. But, you know, if you know anything about neuroscience and, and, you know, spiritual practice, you know, that actually you can cultivate joy you can cultivate happiness. And one of the things you do that is by rejoicing. In fact, later in the letter, Paul says, rejoice always. So he gives a command to rejoice. So I think in prison here, while Paul is talking about rejoicing, and I did say this in my sermon, I'm, I'm going to say it again. You notice he doesn't say, 
man, I'm just bubbling over with this natural joy. I just can't help it. He's saying, I'm choosing to rejoice because even though prison is bad, these other things are happening that are good. One of them is the gospel of man. So we had also his, just his relationship with God, who he is in Jesus. He has Christ. And so he knows that no matter what, I can always rejoice in Christ and who he is and who he is for me, even if my circumstances are bad. And I think this is a, this is a connecting or it's, it's kind of in the same space as the practice of gratitude to rejoice and to be grateful. So you might know that one of the best practices you can do to cultivate a good outlook in life, to battle sort of melancholy, um, to be a person who's, you know, happier, um, perfect, perfect happiness won't come to where in eternity, but you know, happier than more happy than not happy is to practice gratitude and to look for the things in your life to be grateful for. Well, it's interesting that we kind of know that from just um, psychology and neuroscience, but it's also in the scriptures. And in First Thessalonians 5.18, St. Paul writes, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Another translation says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So two things, three things, actually. There's an exhortation to give thanks. It's a give thanks in everything, so not for everything. I don't give God thanks when people are evil. You know, when I hear in the news about a, another murder that happens, I don't thank God for that. That's evil. It's not to be thanked for. God doesn't celebrate that. It's horrible. But I can, in my own life, in every circumstance, in everything, give thanks to God because there's things about my relationship with God and probably some things in my life, too, that transcend that horrible circumstance or that that circumstance that I just don't like. It may not be horrible. I just don't like it. And so I can always give thanks. And then the scripture adds this interesting phrase. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? People talk about finding God's will all the time. Well, the scripture says one thing that God wants you to do is in everything give thanks. This is a big deal. So let me talk about two things that kind of hang on this. Um, in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, um, St. Paul kind of looks at the, the Gentile nations and kind of paints this big breaststroke about how this is sort of the general pattern of how people move away from God. And one of the things he says is they refused to give glory and they refused to give him thanks. And then by refu once they refused to give the true God thanks, then they begin to worship the creation and they make idols and worship idols instead of the true God. But the fulcrum point in the heart that turns people away from God and toward false gods and toward sin is to refuse to give thanks to God. It's this powerful spiritual practice, really powerful spiritual practice, and it keeps our heart attuned to God. In fact, it's really the center of our Christian life. So on Sundays, we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. And normally, we, we, when we use that language, we talk, we're talking just about the Holy Communion. That's kind of how on the ground we talk about it, which is okay. But actually, the whole liturgy, from beginning to end, from procession to recession, and everything in between, is the Holy Eucharist. But you know what the Greek word for Thanksgiving is? It's Eucharist. It's the Holy Thanksgiving. 
In fact, in the middle of the service, when we do Holy Communion, we pray the Great Thanksgiving. It says it right there in the bulletin. The prayer of consecration is called the Great Thanksgiving. And so I think it says in our bulletin. In fact, let me look at the bulletin, make sure it does say that, so I'm not lying to you. Um, it should say it. Liturgy of Holy Communion, it doesn't say it. But that prayer we pray is also called the Great Thanksgiving. Anyway, sorry to get off track on that. Maybe we should print that in there. But, you know, that's it for another day. Anyway, back to my point. So our central act of worship, our central act of being disciples is to gather the body of Christ and give thanks to God. And we do it through Jesus Christ and through his perfect offering that he brings to the heavenly places, according to Hebrews. So in union with Jesus and his perfect offering, we bring ourselves to God and we thank him for Jesus and we thank him for eternal life. We thank him for creation. We thank him for redemption. We offer the whole world to God. And then that flows in the rest of our life. Call to be people who give thanks, practice gratitude, primarily to God. Um, give thanks to God in all things, but also we're thankful to other people. And I think rejoicing is rooted in that. People who practice gratitude towards God are able to also praise God and rejoice in God. And it takes your heart and it calibrates it towards God. It takes your heart and it turns it toward God. It takes your heart and it attaches it to God. It's a really, really powerful practice. So, for example, one thing you might want to do to cultivate this is in your daily prayer time, and if you don't have one, um, talk to me and I'll help you get one going. You need one. Every disciple does. In your prayer, daily prayer time, build in some sort of act of thanksgiving. I pray morning prayer in, in the last prayer is this great prayer of thanks to God um, for all kinds of things. That's one thing you can do. Another thing is like every day, just pull your journal out and go, I'm going to, I'm going to think of three things that I can give thanks God, to God for. So I kind of do that because I also do a thing called the prayer of examine. And a part of that is you review the day, either the day before you review the day before is what you do. Either if you do it at night, the day you're in, or if you can do it in the morning, the day before, and you walk through your day, and you just give God thanks for all the stuff in the day, all the stuff to be thankful for. And it can be like, man, thank you that my hands work. You know, you can drill down to that level. And what that does is, of course, is going to cultivate a kind of joy in your heart or or at least mitigate against lack of joy. But but more, more importantly, it's going to orient your heart toward God. It's going to calibrate your heart to be in alignment with God and be in communion and connection to him. So... Paul's choosing to rejoice, and I think he's choosing to rejoice because he's a person who practices gratitude to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, To give thanks in all things is actually God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you want to do God's will? Practice gratitude to God on a daily basis. Well, those are three other things I want to add to my homily. I'm going to stop there because this is almost 24 minutes long. Um, talk to you next week. God bless.